Hello, good day, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness audio cast of the newsletter. This will be issues number 21 and 23 from volume 12, corresponding with the dates of May 9th and May 23rd of 2022. These two newsletters will be discussing COVID and corresponding with updates number 61 and 62, with looks at quick hits of new information as well as what's happening in the world of boosting and vaccines. Okay, so at the time of this newsletter, update 61 of coronavirus issues, we had Omicron now showing up as a player with multiple strains. Newer variant BA.2 was making up at the time of May 9th 62% of current case volume based on different parts of the country, while Omicron BA.1.1 had dropped to 1%, B2.1, 2.1 was 37% whereas Delta and BA1.1.529 were gone by competition. Cases were increasing in some cities with little increase in hospital morbidity and mortality. In essence, there was a nice look at the reality that is a new norm where disease volume is not associated as much with disease morbidity. BA.4 and 0.5 were making some waves in South Africa and a little bit in Europe. And now we're seeing the r naught or the infectiousness of this va virus in the Omicron range of looking like measles, which is quite infectious. If you think about a reproductive rate of one infecting 12 people, those 12 infect 12x more, which is 144, going to 1728, eventually to 20,736 and on in the 200,000 range. It's a very fast spread rate. If you want to learn more about this, go to the CDC variants page where you will constantly see updates within a week's time frame. From Monica Gandhi's newsletter, we have, quote, masks, the ruling that the federal transportation mask mandate in the U.S. was not legal this past week triggered a major reevaluation of the effectiveness of mask mandates versus masks. Mask mandates didn't seem to work because people use a variety of masks and cloth masks don't seem to reduce transmission. However, good masks certainly work for the individual to limit exposure to a respiratory pathogen. For the examples of an N95, KN95, FFP2, and KF94, or double masking. So media, scientific literature, turning to effectiveness of one-way masking with good masks for anyone who wants to mask moving forward makes sense. Number two, vaccine effectiveness in those with immunocompromised conditions. The mRNA vaccines work so well that there is a lot of data emerging that a strong immune response is generated even in those with chemotherapy, immunomodulatory agents for rheumatologic conditions, HIV, and a host of other immunocompromising conditions. These are powerful vaccines. This leads to booster discussion and who needs the fourth shot and when. The European equivalent of the CDC has decided on those with immunocompromised or those 80 and older should get vaccinated with a booster. The U.S. guidelines are more permissive down to the age of 50. Number three, COVID, zero. What is happening in China, specifically Shanghai, where human rights violations are taking place in the name of COVID, zero, reveals that we cannot eliminate COVID due to four reasons. A, 29 species of animals carry, therefore we cannot kill these animals. B, long incubation period. C, symptoms look other like other pathogens, hard to tell which one's which. And D, vaccines increasing non-sterilizing. 
However, we can reduce severe disease to very low rates by vaccination, monoclonal antibodies like Evushield for immunocompromise or other antiviral treatments like Paxlovid, all of which need global access. You can find these inf- this information from newsletters at mashupmd.com looking up Monica Gandhi. All right, let's jump into the quick hits. So number one, new variants. So what do we know as of this newsletter? The recently emerged SARS-CoV-2 Omicron sublineages of BA2.1, 2.1, BA2.13, BA.4, and BA.5 all contain L452 mutations and show potentially higher transmissibility over BA.2. The newer variants' receptor binding and immunization capacity and capability require immediate investigation, especially on the role of L452 substitutions. Herein, coupled with the structural comparisons, we show that BA.2 sublineages including BA.1.21 and BA.2.13 exhibit increased ACE2 binding affinities compared to BA.1, while BA.4 and BA.5 displays the weakest receptor binding affinity due to F486V and R493Q reversions. Importantly, compared to BA.2 and BA.2.1.2.1 and BA.4 and 0.5 exhibit stronger neutralization evasion against the plasma of a three-dose vaccines and most strikingly a vaccinated B1, BA.1 convalescence. Together, our results indicate that Omicron can evolve mutations to specifically evade humoral immunity elicited by BA.1 infection. The continuous evolution of Omicron poses great challenges to SARS-CoV-2 herd immunity and suggests that BA.1-derived vaccine boosters may not be ideal for achieving broad-spectrum protection. That all comes to us from Cow CAO at all 2022. As always, the links to all of these articles are found in the newsletter at Salisbury Pediatric Associates website. This is a very interesting study from my perspective, leading us yet again realizing that the speed of the SARS-2 mutation is outpacing our ability to catch up to it and get close to any form of herd immunity. It appears very, very unlikely that we will ever achieve herd immunity. We shall see. The newer variant strains of Omicron lineage are more infectious by a large margin, but remain no more deadly than BA.1 and less morbid than the Delta strain based on current data. Evasion of the antibody humoral system appears to be the new norm for this variant lineage based off of a BA.1 leaving us in a quandary. Vaccines are minimally effective against stopping the spread of the illness at any level. Even Omicron-specific vaccines are not working to slow spread. The death risk is still decoupled from infection, which remains great news. Therefore, we have to keep asking ourselves, what are we fighting for now? If we vaccinate the U.S. with a strain-specific BA.4 or BA.5 vaccine, but the remainder of the world is unvaccinated, then the immune escape seen to date will make the new vaccine obsolete in short order. That is also assuming that the new variant doesn't emerge before the 100-day vaccine development period plus the days to distribute are completed. It is almost as if you need to have the perfect mass vaccination globally over one week to pull any sort of herd immunity off. Clearly, that will never happen. Thus, I ask again, what are we fighting for now? My answer, normal life. We have to learn to live with COVID and its mutations over time. As always, that leaves you in control of your lifestyle decisions that drive immune solvency and your safety when you get infected. Quick hit number two, CDC seroprevalence study. As of February 2022, approximately 75% of children and adolescents had serologic evidence of previous infection with SARS-CoV-2, with approximately one-third becoming newly seropositive since 2021 of December. 
the greatest increases in serial prevalence during September 21 and February of 2022 range occurred in the age groups with the lowest vaccination coverage. The proportion of U.S. population fully vaccinated by April of 2022 increased with age. 5 to 11-year-olds were 28 percent, 12 to 17-year-olds 59 percent, 18 to 49-year-olds 69 percent, and 50 to 64-year-olds 80 percent. This data set confirms what we had suspected. The United States is now almost fully exposed to SARS-2 in one variant or another, and, all, and many are also vaccinated. Therefore, the risk of death for most people has plummeted and should remain low for a long time based on T-cell immune activity. There will continue to be emerging data that the vaccinees or the vaccines will help reduce severity for high-risk individuals against most, if not all, future variants. This is not to say that vaccination with boosters will stop at all the spread of disease based on current infectiousness of the new variants coupled to the immune escape of the vaccines and prior SARS-2 infection. With the vaccines now, we are playing whack-a-mole. The logistical reality of controlling the endemicity of a SARS-2 COVID in the future remains daunting at best and on par with our ability to halt influenza yearly. This is not a comparison of infectiousness as SARS-2 is far more contagious than the flu. We are truly in a new paradigm. The elderly and the immunocompromised individuals in the world are at high risk moving forward for a negative outcome. The new variant's immune escape means that they will have a chance to set up shop rapidly in hosts before T-cells come to play. This puts people on the back foot for immune resiliency and protection. I surmise that boosters for this population are the only true protection from death over time as infections with SARS-2 will be frequent and repeated. Number three. More on boosters. Two studies from Israel looked over 1 million doses of the fourth dose of Pfizer's mRNA vaccine in greater than 50-year-old population. The studies noted that protection against testing positive for SARS-2 is 50% better with a fourth dose, fourth dose than those with only three doses, and the protection had waned by eight weeks. As seen in previous vaccine studies, protection against severe COVID was robust in this riskier population. This comes to us from BAR hyphen O-N et al. 2022 and Magen, M-A-G-E-N et al. 2022. Number four, from a new study, COVID-19 survivors were less accurate and with slower response times than match control population. And these deficits were still detectable when patients were followed up six months later. The effects were strongest for those who required mechanical ventilation. This is basically a marker of how much infection and disease burden they had. By comparing the patients to 66,000 members of the general public, the researchers estimate that the magnitude of cognitive loss is similar on average to that sustained with 20 years of aging, between 50 and 70 years of age, and that this is equivalent to losing 10 IQ points. We know that in a subset of patients, COVID crosses the blood-brain barrier and induces inflammation. These individuals are at risk for brain degeneration or dysfunction over time. Age increases this risk and is likely due to the microbiome, metabolic, and immunologic changes induced by poor lifestyle behaviors. Again, like we discussed a few weeks ago, aim to mitigate this risk by reducing inflammatory triggers, including poor quality foods, exposure to toxins, sleep deprivation, stress, drug use, and anything else that causes you disease. Number five, from the British Medical Journal, we see the mRNA and the BNT vaccines are effective in individuals who take immunosuppressants. However, individuals who are vaccinated but immunosuppressants are still at higher risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19 hospitalization than the broader vaccinated population. 
Booster doses are effective and crucially important for individuals on immunosuppressants. This comes to us from Shen, S-H-E-N, et al. 2022. Number six, some individuals could have poor transport of omega-3 fats based on mutations in the genes MFSD2A that encodes for docosahexaenoic, otherwise known as DHA, acid, transport protein. This defect can cause a decrease in the transportation of DHA into the brain cells, leading to increased blood-brain barrier permeability, which is an issue in long COVID and post-COVID neurological sequelae. This comes to us from Andreone, A-N-D-R-E-O-N-E, et al., 2017, and Benz V, B-E-N-Z-V-I, et al., 2014. Another reason to increase your omega-3 fatty acid intake as fish oil or small cold water fish. Section 2. A new and potentially devastating reaction to an adenovirus illness has been found in Alabama and other parts of the world. Adenoviral illness is usually a mild to moderate respiratory illness with significant sore throat. This time, however, it appears to affect the liver and subset of children after infection. From the CDC, we see that nine children were patients at the Children's Hospital of Alabama. These patients were from geographically distinct parts of the state. No epidemiologic links among patients were identified. All patients were immunocompetent, which means their immune systems worked with no clinically significant medical comorbidities. Before admission, among nine patients, vomiting, diarrhea, upper respiratory symptoms were reported by seven, six, and three patients, respectively. At admission, eight patients had sclerolictoris, which is jaundice in the eyes. Seven had hepatomegaly or enlarged liver. Six had jaundice overall, and one had encephalopathy. Elevated transaminases or liver enzymes were detected among all patients with ALT, otherwise known as alanine aminotransferase, at 603 up to almost 5,000. Aspartate aminotransferase, AST, from 447 up to 4,000. And total bilirubin range is anywhere from 0.23 to 13.5 milligrams per deciliter were elevated in eight patients. All patients had negative test results for hepatitis viruses A, B, and C and several other causes of pediatric hepatitis and infections were also ruled out, including autoimmune hepatitis, Wilson's disease, bacteremia, urinary tract infections, and SARS-CoV-2 infection. None of the children had documented history of previous SARS-CoV-2 infection. Liver biopsies from six patients demonstrated various degrees of hepatitis with no viral inclusions observed. No immunohistochemical evidence of adenovirus or no viral particles identified by electron microscopy. Three patients developed acute liver failure, two of whom were treated with cytofovir, off-label use of a drug against potentially this inflammation of the liver, and steroids, and were transferred to a different medical facility where they underwent liver transplantation. Plasma specimens from these two patients were negative for adenovirus by real-time PCR, polymerase chain reaction testing, upon arrival at the receiving medical facility. But both patients received positive test results when retested by the same real-time PCR test using a whole blood specimen. All patients had recovered or are recovering, including the two transplant patients. Adenovirus type 41 is primarily spread via the fecal oral route and predominantly affects the gut. It is a common cause of pediatric acute gastroenteritis, typically with diarrhea, vomiting, and fever, often accompanied by respiratory symptoms. Adenovirus is recognized as a cause of hepatitis among immunocompromised children, those with faulty immune systems. It might be an underrecognized contributor to liver injury among healthy children. However, the magnitude of this relationship remains under investigation. 
This cluster, along with recently identified possible cases in Europe, suggests that adenovirus should be considered in the differential diagnosis of acute hepatitis of unknown etiology among children. Clinicians and laboratorians should be aware of possible differences in adenovirus test sensitivity for different specimen types. Testing using whole blood might be more sensitive than that using plasma for PCR. CDC is monitoring the situation closely and understands that the possible cause of illness and, the identify, and to identify potential efforts to prevent or mitigate the illness are being looked into. Enhanced surveillance is underway in coordination with jurisdictional public health partners. For me, these rare but serious events related to this virus are worth noting so that a parent seeing that the child has yellow skin or yellow eyes associated with vomiting, diarrhea, or congestion seek immediate care and have the child worked up for adenoviral infection by blood-based PCR. This care should include analysis of the liver and coagulation products to see if the liver is showing any major signs of dysfunction. Okay, so that wraps up coronavirus update number 61. My favorite song of the week for this episode was Stand By Me by Otis Redding. Let's move on to coronavirus update number 62, which corresponds with May 23rd of 2022. So if you haven't had a chance to, I encourage you to listen to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast episode number 20, where we interview Dr. Sanford Newmark, who is an expert on ADHD and has written a book called ADHD Without Drugs. He is the director of the clinical programs of the University of California, San Francisco's Osher Center for Integrative Health. He is brilliant and absolutely worth the one hour of his time to listen to. Okay, coronavirus update number 62. Omicron US strains now are shaping up a little differently. The newer variant BA.2 makes up 51% of current case volume based on different parts of the country, while BA.1.1 is down to 1%, BA.2.12.1 is at 48%, and the rest of them are sort of disappeared based on competition. Cases were increasing in most cities around this time, which was May 23rd of 2022, but hospital morbidity and mortality remained minimal. Still almost no major influx yet of BA.4 and 0.5, which was seen in Europe and Africa, and infectiousness remains very high. So all signs point to SARS-CoV-2 infection somewhere between one to three times per year to one to three times per every one to three years. So we're all over the map on this, but um, we'll see what happens. It is the new common cold now with a massive bite. For those people who are older with high risk, it's significantly dangerous. Vaccines and boosters will not slow this train as far as the data shows to date. So lots of data to talk about. Let's get on with it. Quick hits for now. Number one, FDA revises the use of the Janssen COVID vaccine because of a serious adverse event. After conducting an updated analysis, evaluation, and investigation of reported cases, the FDA has determined that the risk of thrombosis clotting with thrombocytopenia syndrome called TTS, a syndrome that is rare but life-threatening for some people, it is, shows an issue with blood clotting in the body as well as low blood platelets with onset of symptoms approximately one to two weeks following administration of the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine. This warrants limiting the authorized use of the vaccine, according to the FDA. 
For me, kudos to the FDA for stepping up and giving a strong statement on risk. This decision is important to continue to keep the public aware that the FDA does work in our favor to protect us from harm when the science evolves. Number two, let us give a relook at the MMWR data, that's a morbidity mortality weekly report from the CDC from January of 2022. They said among 1,228,000 people who completed primary vaccination series during the December 2020 to October 2021 range, severe COVID-19 associate outcomes were 0.015% and death was 00 excuse me, 0.0033%, which equates to 0.000033, which is very, very rare. Risk factors for severe outcomes included age greater than 65, immunosuppressed status, and six other underlying conditions of which we've talked about in the past, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease, uh, and uh, immunosuppression and liver disease. Risk factors are serious and we should take them and give people counsel to how to reduce their risk long term. All persons with severe outcomes had at least one risk factor and 78% of the people who died had four risk factors. This comes to us from Yes at All 2022. So, you know, for me, we need to know which group has the highest risk and we need to know how to help them. So what do they need to do? In my mind, they should get boosted as frequently as possible based on safety and immunogenicity data. They should take care of their disease by taking medications as required for function and health based on your provider's recommendations. Anyone with comorbid diseases should eat really healthy. That includes anti-inflammatory style diets and avoidance of foods that cause triggering inflammation, specifically refined carbohydrates and processed foods, including seed oils, fatty foods, that we all know what they are, French fries, burgers, chips, all that stuff. This causes excess inflammation, which I think is the main driver of disease risk. We should increase daily exercise to a light sweat if possible. Movement is very important. Wear an N95 mask in public spaces, especially indoors. Keep your micronutrient stores adequate for cellular functioning, including vitamin D, zinc, iron, Vitamin A, test with your provider for accuracy if you want to know exactly where you need to be at. Don't take supplements without talking to your provider. Wash your hands for 20 seconds with soap and water often. Sleep seven to eight hours nightly minimum. And finally, test early with any COVID-like symptoms. If positive, obtain antivirals as fast as you can, including Paxlovid. Quick hit number three. More on boosters from Monica Gandhi. Question, quote, Another important tool the U.S. should add to its vaccine arsenal is Novavax. Novavax is a protein subunit vaccine, similar to the flu vaccines, and those for many routine child immunizations. This more traditional vaccine technology could help some overcome vaccine hesitancy. And the U.S. vaccine hesitancy ranges from less than 2% to more than 20%, depending on zip code and county. In some states, 14% of those hesitant are concerned about the possible side effects and approximately six cited planning to wait and see if it's safe as of February 2022. Expanding our arsenal to include non-genetic material platform vaccines would go a long way toward addressing these concerns, however, unfounded as they are. In a phase three trial in adults, two doses of Novavax vaccine was effective 90.4% against symptomatic infection, 100% effective against moderate to severe disease although this was studied in Delta and not in the Omicron era. 
Novak's approved by the WHO and is awaiting U.S. EUA approval. End quote. Gandhi et al. 2022. This is a great idea to reduce the risk that multiple people feel of receiving three, four, and five mRNA vaccines. Repeated boosting or vaccinating is poorly studied over a longer period of time in a large group to see blips and side effects. This is especially concerning in those at low risk currently for death or moderate to severe disease. The vaccines are not doing much for transmission prevention. Thus, each person has a reasonable argument to not want to boost in the current situation with current vaccines. Number four. Boosters following vaccination are continuing to show weaker immunity against variants than natural infection after vaccination. Two new studies noted this effect. We have seen these data sets repeatedly show up over the last year, LSR 2022. Natural immunity for those that are not at risk seems like a better way to go moving forward. Data speaks, we just need to look at it. Number five, the Omicron variant B.1.1.529 of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 extensively escapes neutralizing antibodies elicited by SARS-CoV-2 infection or vaccination. In this present study, we investigated, this is the group talking, as this is quoted, whether BNT162B2 messenger RNA vaccine-induced memory T cells functionally respond to Omicron spike protein. Experiments were performed using samples from healthcare workers who were immunized with two or three doses of BNT162B2 mRNA vaccine in individuals with prior SARS-CoV-2 infection, who were immunized with two doses of BNT16B2 vaccine. Vaccine-induced memory T cells exhibited substantial responses to the Omicron spike protein, with no difference between healthcare workers with two doses versus three vaccine doses. In individuals with prior infection, two-dose vaccination robustly boosted memory T-cells that responded to Omicron spike protein in the SARS-CoV-2 wild-type lineage B spike protein. Importantly, polyfunctionality was preserved in vaccine-induced memory T-cells responding to the Omicron spike protein. The present findings indicate that BNT16B2-induced memory T-cells substantially respond to Omicron variant with preserved polyfunctionality, end quote, Young et al., 2022. This study is of interest to me because the data again shows limited benefit of boosters on outcome risk in a high-risk healthcare population. Memory T-cells are a major player in severe and moderate disease reduction, and there is no difference in these responses whether boosted or not. Boosters appear to only increase your neutralizing antibodies for a very short period of time in multiple studies, as shown in the newsletter in recent months, which in turn reduces the viral illness rate by 50% or less during a few weeks following injection. Number six. Across all age groups, seroprevalence increased from 34% in December 2021 to 58% in February 2022. The largest increases occurred in children and adolescents. By February of 2022, three-quarters of children and adolescents had been infected with SARS-CoV-2, with about one-third of these infections occurring during the Omicron wave. Ganatra, G-A-N-A-T-R-A, et al., 2022. Again, we see that the U.S. volume of children with SARS-CoV-2 immune knowledge is at a minimum 75%. This raises the question of any need for vaccination for any child without prior exposure. I have seen no doubt that it would be necessary moving forward for this group to prevent MIS or any other negative outcome. I'm waiting for a cogent argument to vaccinate a child that has survived SARS-CoV-2 without a disease concern. If the child has immune weakness concerns or another disease that makes risk of another SARS-CoV-2 infection problematic, then vaccines likely make a lot of sense. Each person must follow the science and risk stratified data. Number seven. 
Deer are known to be a host of SARS-2. A recent publication, BioRxiv, shows that transmission back to humans is possible and likely probable but rare, Pickering et al. 2022. Per the CDC, there are up to 29 animals that can carry SARS-2, making eradication through vaccination next to impossible with so many animal vector sources. Number eight, more on boosting. An excellent excellent article by Dr. Paul if it is worth your full read. That's spelled O-F-F-I-T. Here's a moderate snippet. Quote, what about booster dosing for persons who are younger? One year after the BNT162B2 vaccine became available, studies in the United States showed that a third dose of vaccine also enhanced protection against severe disease for people as young as 18 years of age. Unfortunately, these studies did not stratify patients according to whether they had existing conditions. Therefore, it was unclear who among these younger groups most benefit from additional dose. Nonetheless, the CDC later recommended that everyone 12 years of age or older should receive three doses of BNT162B2, regardless of whether risk factors were present. This universal booster recommendation led some summer camps, high schools, universities, hospitals, and businesses to require three doses of mRNA vaccine. In February 2022, in a study that did not support the booster recommendation for children, CDC researchers found that two doses of BNT162B2 induced long-lived protection against serious illness in children 12 to 18 years of age. End quote. And then a second quote, he says, People are now confused about what it means to be fully vaccinated. It is easy to understand how this could happen. Arguably, the most disappointing era surrounding the use of COVID-19 vaccines was the labeling of mild illness or asymptomatic infections after vaccinations as breakthroughs. As it is true for all mucosal vaccines, the goal is to protect against serious illness, to keep people out of the hospital and test of care unit morgue. The term breakthrough, which implies failure, created unrealistic expectations and led to the adoption of zero-tolerance strategy for this virus. If we are to move from pandemic to endemic, At some point, we're going to have to accept that vaccination or natural infection or a combination of the two will not offer long-term protection against mild illness. In addition, because boosters are not risk-free, we need to clarify which groups most benefit. For example, boys and men between 16 and 29 years of age are at increased risk for myocarditis caused by mRNA vaccines. And all age groups are at risk for theoretical problems of an original antigenic sin which is a decreased ability to respond to a new immunogen because the immune system is locked onto the original immunogen. An example of this phenomenon can be found in a study of non-human primates showing that boosting with an Omicron-specific variant did not result in higher titers of Omicron-specific neutralizing antibodies than did boosting with ancestral strain. This potential problem could limit our ability to respond to a newer variant. Again, this comes to us from Paul Offit from the New England Journal of Medicine this year. To me, that is an incredibly powerful article. And that section there really lays out a huge group of key points. One, the goal is to protect against serious illness, to keep up on the hospital, intense care in a morgue. That's our main goal. And that is happening despite tons of people not being boosted and lots of people getting infected. Another piece, boosters are not risk-free. We need to clarify that because teenagers are at higher risk. Teenagers going to college now are going to be asked to take more booster doses that don't really make a big difference. That is really problematical for me. And again, we need to stratify risk based on coexisting condition or pre-existing condition. Dr. Offit makes very, very reasonable and logical arguments here. Number nine, hospitalization and death 
remains decoupled from infection volume in the U.S. and now South Africa has published similar data with a population that is less than 50% vaccinated. More at all 2022. This tells us that natural infection is leading to immunity that is preventing serious disease the next go-round. This is very important. Death and hospitalization is really the metric that matters. Everything else is political theater in my mind. Number 10. This is a very technical piece, but very important. From a Nature Communications article that I got from my friend Sam Yannick. It says, Decline in immune function and inflammation concomitantly develop with aging. Here we focus on the impact of this inflammatory environment on T-cells and demonstrate that in contrast to successful tumor elimination in young mice, replenishment of tumor-specific CD4-positive T-cells fails to induce tumor regression in aged hosts. The impaired anti-tumor effect of CD4-positive T-cells with a defective Th1 differentiation in an aged environment is restored by interleukin-6 blockade or IL-6 deficiency. IL-6 is the cytokine that's involved in heavy inflammation. IL-6 blockade also restores the impaired ability of CD4-positive T-cells to promote CD8-positive T-cell-dependent tumor elimination in aged mice, which requires gamma interferon. Furthermore, IL-6-stimulated production of IL-4-IL-21 through CMAF induction is responsible for impaired Th1 differentiation. IL-6 also contributes to IL-10 production from CD4-positive T-cells in aged mice, causing attenuated responses of CD8-positive T-cells. These findings suggest that IL-6 serves as an intrinsic factor confounding CD4-positive T-cell-mediated immunity against tumor in old age. This comes from Tsukamoto et al. 2015, T-S-U-K-A-M-O-T-O. Also, in a second article from Immunity and Aging, quote, we investigated T-cell numbers and differentiation telomerase deficient, otherwise known as M-Turk minus minus mice, under steady state conditions and the functional role of telomerase in CD4-positive T-cells using in vitro stimulation TH1 polarization protocols by comparing T-cells from M-Turk negative negative and control mice. We report reduced relative CD4-positive T-cell numbers in blood and secondary lymphoid organs and relative decline in the naive T-cell population in thymus, blood, spleen, and M-Turk minus minus mice compared to control mice. Importantly, after in vitro polarization, M-Turk minus minus G3-CD4 positive T-cells showed higher numbers of gamma interferon producing cells and reduced expression of CD28. Notably, telomerase deficient T-cells were more susceptible to inhibition of Th1 polarization by IL-6 in vitro. These results demonstrate that telomerase deficiency recapitulates several changes of CD4-positive T-cells seen in aged humans regarding the naive T-cell population expression of CD28 and cytokine production. This comes to us from MATTH Matt et al. 2022. So for me, the point of these articles for the non-immunologists, which is most of us, is that maintaining appropriate viral and tumor killing capacity as we age is dependent on many factors, including adequate telomere length, which is the end of the tails of DNA that are decreased with age and also get decreased faster with poor lifestyle decisions, i.e. bad diet, chemical exposure, uh, oxidative stress, and much more, as well as limiting the scope and non-chronic inflammation. IL-6 is a cell signaling molecule that is very important in many inflammatory processes throughout the body that are natural for infection and disease resolution. However, in robust or chronic state, excess IL-6 can be very detrimental to our viral and cancer-killing capacity. If you look at my whiteboard below in the newsletter or on www.salisburypediatrics.com health and wellness newsletter tab, look at the um, uh, 
the website picture where I have the, the articles looking at COVID pathophysiology, my whiteboard, you'll get all that information. You will see that how many lifestyle-related factors are driving decreased Th1 and NK cell activity, which in turn reduces viral and tumor control. This is increasingly important with advancing age. Number 11, 400,000 fewer children entered kindergarten in 2021. This issue will add to a large national burden of educational slowing for large volumes of children that are already missing school or have missed school due to the pandemic. It is also a major concern for delayed or missing vaccinations updating that are leading to possible increase in vaccine preventable disease breakthroughs and loss of herd immunity. This comes to us from Sun et al. 2022. This is a big deal, folks. If your kid's not getting up to date on all their general vaccines from major morbidity type disease like measles, mumps, rubella, you know, pneumococcus, these are big deals. Don't miss out on those vaccines. Section two. Anyone following the formula debacle? There is a good article in the Atlantic Magazine by Derek Thompson called What's Behind America's Shocking Baby Formula Shortage. According to the article, there are three major factors driving the shortage. One is what we know of as a bacteria called Chronobacter Sakazaki, which was found contaminating a formula plant in Michigan. Number two, COVID caused less babies to be born, reducing formula demand, which in turn reduced production pre these issues. Three, trade and FDA policies have thwarted the importation of formula from Europe and other sources, magnifying supply-side issues. I would add a fourth, people choosing formula over breastfeeding when they are capable. No judgment here, but this is really a dramatic issue that would help and reduce the demand for formula in the first place. The solutions, number one, keep working hard to reduce contaminants and production lines at companies. Number two, breastfeed where possible and avoid any need for formula in the first place. Most important lever that is controllable and then leaving formula available for those people who don't have an option, who can't breastfeed and who do absolutely need the formula. Number three, reduce regular tape at the federal level that prevents the U.S. uh, importation of good quality formulas from outside of the U.S. Again, no judgment placed on the choice to formula feed, just hard truths about what is best ideal that is now magnified by supply chain issues. And then finally, the song of the week, She Talks to Angels by the Black Crows. What a good one. Give it a listen. All right, folks, that's the end of this audio cast of the Salisbury Pediatric Health and Wellness Newsletter, issues 21 and 23, which corresponded with May 9th and May 23rd of 2022. These are coronavirus updates number 61 and 62 in successive order. All right, everyone, remember, hug those kids. Have a great day. Really appreciate you listening. As always, the disclaimer, this audio cast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the formation or the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.